Well, yeah, let's dive in. Perceptions, I think, are a funny thing, right? Uh, many of you probably know that I'm fairly new to the pastoral staff here at ECC, but what you may not know is that the church that I came from was a Baptist church. And I think there's a lot of kind of preconceived ideas about what it means to be Baptist. Uh, for instance, the first week that I was here, I announced to the, the folks in the office that I was going to go to the Monday night Minnesota men's thing that meets on um, tomorrow night. Actually, you should go to that. There's an extra announcement. Uh, the Monday night men's thing. And our own dear Brandon uh, looked at me and goes, uh, oh, you're going to go to that? I said, yeah. He goes, well, you know, it meets at Grumpy's, right? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, you know, some of the guys might drink beer. <laughs> like, yep, that sounds great. And he goes, but you're Baptist. <laughs> and I went, oh, and Baptists don't drink beer. Got it. Okay, that's fine. Uh, so, you know, I went and it was great and it was awesome. And I met a bunch of guys and it was really a great time and I'll go again tomorrow night. Uh, and the game will be on. There's another announcement. Um, so preconceived ideas. Hopefully we're, we're busting some myths. And then the second Sunday that I was here, we did a child, uh, an infant dedication and an infant baptism. And again, I had a surprising number of people, including our own dear Brandon. No, I'm just kidding. Brandon didn't say it the same. But a number of people come up to me and say some kind of variation of, are you okay? Are you okay with this? And I'm like, well, yeah, that was beautiful, but you're Baptist. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, no, that's, that's great. And I, I think my response was something like, no, that was absolutely gorgeous. I mean, that was amazing, and I absolutely loved it. I love that these parents are doing everything they can, both sets of parents, that they can to engage their family and their church in helping raise kids that love Jesus and that love his church. That's beautiful. I mean, yeah, my own history had some particular practices, but this was gorgeous and beautiful, and I absolutely loved it. But I get it. I mean, these seem like minor things now, like maybe they're just kind of funny, but there was a time not that long ago in the church's history where, you know, doing these things the wrong way got you removed from fellowship. There was a time not that far removed from our history now today where, you know, people were killed for baptizing each other the wrong way. It's not that far in the church's history, unfortunately. I mean, we've come a long way as followers of Christ, but even in my lifetime, I remember as a kid seeing news reports of, of, of Northern Ireland. And how the Protestants and, and the, the Catholics were killing each other over how they followed Jesus. And I remember even as a child thinking, how can two groups of people who primarily identify as followers of Christ be doing this to one another in the name of Christ? It didn't make any sense. Even in my own small hometown, you know, no one ever explicitly told me that the little church that my family went to was the only good church in town. But that was the subtle message we heard. Right? And we had these preconceived ideas about every other church in town. The Baptists and the age years were these hyper-conservative, crazy fundamentalist, blah, blah, blahs, stereotype, broad brush, not accurate. The Lutherans and the Catholics and all the mainliners were this stereotype, and they had great fish fries. <laughs> but there were these stereotypes that we operated out of, and there was no sort of interaction between them at all. I mean, as you can imagine, in fact, in my hometown, there was really no sort of inner church cooperation. All the churches just kind of looked out their windows at the other churches with suspicion. Like maybe they weren't doing it quite right. There were no mosques. There were no Jehovah's Witness churches. There were no Mormons. There didn't need to be. The Christians were doing a great job of keeping themselves from ever working together to accomplish good. Why would Satan bother to give us real conflicts, real enemies, when he can keep the Christians just fighting amongst ourselves, right? 
operating out of stereotypes and misperceptions and never actually coming together to talk, to find common ground. Well, fortunately, I'm guessing I'm not alone in that, that many of you probably grew up in traditions like that. And fortunately, Scripture has a lot to say about this. We've been walking through the series Holy War, looking at the ancient biblical book of Joshua, where God brought his chosen people, Israel, out of Egypt. And he brought them the long way around to this promised land that he had for them, a land called Canaan. And we're going to, he was, God was going to give them this land, and he promised to make Israel into a great nation, a nation that could be an example to the rest of the world of what it li- looked like to live in God's kingdom, what it looked like to live with God as your king. They were meant to be an example, a city on a hill, offering light to a dark world. And Canaan, this promised land that God had given them, was a dark, dark world. The book of Joshua then lays out these remarkable battles like the battle for the city of Jericho, where, as we learned a few weeks ago, an unconventional God provided them with an unconventional battle plan and gave them an unconventional victory. God does the impossible and time and time again gives Israel's victories where they should have been crushed. And through this series, we've seen God's continued faithfulness to Israel and to his promises even when Israel fails to live up to their end of the deal. Last week, we ended in, in Joshua chapter 7. And today, we're going to jump fast forward, basically, almost all the way to the end of the book, to Joshua 22. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we'd love to give you one. Uh, we've got Bibles here on the tables at the doors at both ex- exits. We'd love to give you one of those. Like I said, we were in Josh- Joshua chapter 7 last week, and God, once again, gives Israel victory over, the, over their enemies. The author then spends chapters 8 through 21. The, the vast majority of the book of Joshua is spent by the author recounting uh, how God delivers victory over victory after victory. In ridiculous, amazing ways, God blesses Israel and gives them victory over the Canaanites and then distributes the land to the tribes of Israel. The chapters have these headers throughout the whole thing that read like news headlines. Stuff like Joshua, let's see, Joshua defeats the Southern Canaanite Coalition. Or, the sun and moon stand still. And then I list all the dozens, literally dozens of kings that Israel has defeated. Every name, every detail. The author of the book wants us to know just exactly how complete the victory is for Yahweh and for Israel. Then there are chapter headers like Joshua distributes the land. And the author goes into even more painstaking detail how each parcel of land is distributed. Each portion of land is distributed to each tribe and then within the tribe to each clan of the tribe. It's this incredibly long and detailed list that just seems so boring to us as modern readers. Here's chapter 18. See See if this keeps you alert and awake. The first allotment of land went to the clans of the tribe of Benjamin. It lay between the territory assigned to the tribes of Judah and Joseph. The northern boundary of Benjamin's land began at the Jordan River, went north to the slope of Jericho, then went through the hill country in the wilderness of Beth-Avon. And from there, the boundary went south to Luz, that is Bethel. Why don't you just say Bethel? And proceeded down to Ataroth-Adar on the hill that lies south of blah, 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 blah. This was the western boundary. And that's just the western boundary. It goes on for chapters to illustrate the next three boundaries. And it does this for every portion of land that's distributed to every tribe of the nation. It's list after list. And and you wonder as a modern reader, like, why doesn't it just say, like, and then God gave all the land to all the people. Right? Done. So much simpler. But the author doesn't. Why? 
I think in part, it's because the author wants us to know that in every way possible, in every battle over every king, in every city, in every square mile, God was faithful to do everything that he had said. Every possible promise that he had promised, God does. And then finally, chapter 21 ends like this. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors. And they took possession of it and settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had solemnly promised to their ancestors. None of their enemies could stand against them, for the Lord helped them conquer all their enemies. Not a single one of all the good promises the Lord had given to the family of Israel was left unfulfilled. Everything he had spoken came true. The author is just trying to hammer this point through 13 chapters. And then finally with this big conclusion, he's saying in every way possible, everything that God had promised, not just to them, but to their ancestors, in everything, God was faithful to do what he said he would do and to be who he said he would be. If this was Disney, I think at this point, the credits would roll and they'd be, and they lived happily ever after. End of story. But it's not Disney. Chapter 21 ends sort of happily ever after, but then 22 continues the story. Joshua calls the eastern tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half tribe of Manasseh. He calls them together and basically says, great job. You guys did really, really well. You've been totally faithful. Now go east across the river and claim the land that God has prepared for you, that God has given you. And so they gather their things and they leave the rest of Israel at Shiloh and they go across the river to begin to, to claim this land. But before they do, it says, but while they were still in Canaan, and it's one of the situations where you go like, oh, why is there a but? <laughs> like it should just be, and then they went and it was great and end of story. But while they were still in Canaan, and when they came to a place called Geloloth, near the Jordan River, the men of Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh stopped to build a large and imposing altar. See, now that's a problem. I mean, if you know anything about Israel's history, if you know anything about the journey they've been on, building altars has been an issue for them. I mean, in fact, turning away from Yahweh and building altars, worshiping other gods was kind of Israel's MO. They had done it several times in their exodus out of Egypt. They had done it even since they'd come into this promised land. Just a few years earlier, the men of Israel at a, at a city called Peor had interacted with the women of Peor finger quotes, and, and as a result, had ended up worshiping the gods of the Moabites, worshiping Baal. And as a result, God had turned his wrath against all of Israel, and all of Israel paid a price for the actions of a few men. And so now it looks like Reuben, Gad, and at least half of Manasseh are kind of back at it, falling back into those patterns that had been so destructive for them and for Israel. And you get a sense in Israel's reaction that, frankly, they are fearful that they are quite concerned. Let's read. The rest of Israel heard that the people of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had built an altar at Geloloth at the edge of the land of Canaan on the west side of the Jordan River. So the whole community of Israel gathered at Shiloh and prepared to go to war against them. I, th I think it's helpful maybe to point out that it says, the rest of Israel heard. Not like the rest of Israel saw irrefutable evidence or the rest of Israel did their due diligence, but the rest of Israel heard that this was going on. And as a result, prepared to go to war as a result of that perception of that hearsay, they armored up and they're ready to go to war with their own people in their own nation. 
That's funny. I mean, the author just spent the last 13 chapters going into such vivid detail about all the ways that God had provided and protected and blessed Israel. This should be, and they lived happily ever after. But now 11 verses into the very next chapter, the nation is divided and civil war is about to break out. Why would Satan bother to give us real enemies if he can just keep us fighting amongst ourselves, right? So I think Israel, the remainder of people that are in Shiloh, have really just a couple of choices here of what they can do with this information. They could simply ignore what they saw. Like, well, it, it certainly looks like they're turning and worshiping other gods. It certainly looks like they're continuing these patterns that have been so destructive. But who are we to say? Who are we to speak into that? What right do we have? As if behavior didn't matter, as if sin doesn't matter. But as we've learned over the last several weeks, sin matters. Sin has consequences. But to actually act on that, to actually confront someone else, to actually go to them and say, this behavior we're seeing concerns us is so hard. It was then and it is today in our society where it's so difficult to speak into anybody else's life without feeling like you're being intolerant or, or that you're, you should be minding your own business. That's so difficult. It was then as well. So the other obvious choice that Israel has in this case is to simply to go to war. They're all ready to just go in and clean house and proactively get ahead of this problem and through military action ensure purity of the people. Shoot first and ask questions later. But Israel chooses a third option, a third path, the most difficult choice. They lean into it. They ask questions. They pursue unity if at all possible, let's keep reading. Verse 12, it said, So the whole community of Israel gathered at Shiloh and prepared to go to war against them. But then the very next verse, it says, First, however, they sent a delegation led by Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to talk with the tribes of Jubit, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. It had been Phinehas, back at that city of Peor that I mentioned, who had actually brought Israel back, who had called Israel to repentance who had led the way in bringing them back to turning to God and saving them. And so it's Phineas who's actually raised up and elected to go and to confront these three tribes. Let's read. When they arrived in the land of Gilead, he said to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, the whole community of the Lord demands to know why are you betraying the God of Israel? How could you turn away from the Lord and build an altar for yourselves in rebellion against him? Was our sin at Peor not enough? To this day, we are not fully cleansed of it. Even after the plague that struck the entire community of the Lord. And yet today, you are turning away from following the Lord. This is key. If you rebel against the Lord today, he will be angry with all of us tomorrow. You can hear the fear in that. Like, hey, this doesn't just affect you guys. The choices that you're making impact all of us. And yet they lean into it. They're just honest. They just say, hey, we're not sure exactly what we see here, but it doesn't look good. And if we really are God's people, we need to confront this now. We need to confront this here and now. The stakes are simply too high. And then look at the response. The, the people of, of Reuben, Gad, they say, the Lord, the mighty one is God. The Lord, they repeat it. The Lord, the mighty one is God. They repeat that as if to emphasize, no, 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 no. Only God, only Yahweh is God. He knows the truth and may Israel know it too. We have not built the altar in treacherous rebellion against the Lord. If we've done so, do not spare our lives this day. 
If we've built an altar for ourselves to turn away from the Lord or to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings, may the Lord himself punish us. Basically saying, whoa, 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 you've got this all wrong. You have misread the situation. We need to work on our communication skills. This is not what we're intending at all. The truth is we've built this altar because we fear that in future, in the future, your descendants will say to ours, what right do you have to worship the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has placed the Jordan River as a barrier between our people and you people of Reuben and Gad. You have no claim to the Lord. So your descendants may prevent our descendants from worshiping the Lord. It's interesting, right? I mean, in, 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 in the, the armoring up, you saw this response on Israel's, behalf, on Israel's part of getting fearful. that They're fearing that God will somehow you know, execute justice on them and judgment on them. But there's fear in this response as well. They're saying, we're afraid that you're going to separate us off and that, that this Jordan River, you're going to actually claim that God put it there as a barrier so that we can't worship. Both parties are working out of these perceptions. Both parties are working out of fear. So they go on. So we decided to build the altar, not for burnt offerings or sacrifices, but as a memorial. It will remind our descendants and your descendants that we too have the right to worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and peace offerings. Then your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no claim to the Lord. They're building this as sort of a, a memorial, but it, it's from a place of fear. It's from a place of trying to maintain their rights. It's from a place of trying to say, hey, we get in too. Israel could have responded by simply ignoring the issue. Israel could have simply gone to war. But instead, they choose unity. And not unity at the expense of truth. Not unity that ignores bad behavior or, or ignores sin as if behaviors don't matter. Sin really does matter. But I think as we're looking at this passage, we could say unity really matters too. They saw it and understand and they found common good. And as a result, tragedy was averted. So they made this altar that they had built to become a memorial, a sign, a monument to unity. A way of marking for the future generations that all of Israel, all who follow Yahweh, have a right, no matter what tribe, no matter what land, no matter what side of the Jordan, have a right to worship God in unity. And the story ends, Joshua 22 ends this way. The people of Reuben and Gad named the altar Witness. For they said, it is a witness between us and them that the Lord is our God too. In sort of a weird way, we, we get a little bit of that happily ever after ending. You feel like it's maybe a bit reluctant. But this, this, this altar that had been originally had been a source of conflict for them now stands as a witness, now stands as a monument to their unity. How cool is that? So what does this have to do with us today? This seems so far removed. This is thousands of years in ancient history, right? I mean, none of us are starting civil wars in the church over, you know, altars. But I think there are plenty of other ways in which the church of Christ is divided here in America, around the world, and maybe even here at Emmanuel. Divided over issues like war versus pacifism. What should the church's response be? What should the nation's response be to the terrorist attacks and to other nations 
How should the church, how should our nation respond to the Syrian refugee crisis and other refugee crises around the world? How do we respond to immigration broadly? How do we respond to, to the news events like Black Lives Matter and police shootings? How do we as a church respond? I'm guessing in this very room, there are a lot of different ideas about what that response should be. How do we respond to a totally polarized political system, to issues like same-sex marriage and abortion? I mean, the list goes on and on and on of things that, that honestly are dividing us as a church and as a nation that are, that are causing a wedge to be formed in our unity. And just like Israel, a lot of times I think we are reacting to these issues from a place of fear, a place of trying to maintain our own rights, a place of trying to mark out our own territory. And just like Israel, I think the stakes are high. These are not petty issues. And I think just like Israel, we are faced with three choices. I think one, we can, we can choose to ignore these issues that divide us to pretend that they don't really matter or pretend that we don't really have a role to play. We can say, what right do we have to speak into the ideas of others? Who am I to judge? But biblically, I think that choice has consequences for us and for our nation. So choice two we have is that we could go to war with culture, we can go to war with other Christians. I think you see lots of evidence of Christians armoring up around social issues, around political candidates, around issues of justice and mercy. I see plenty of Christians lambasting each other and lobbing little grenades on Facebook and social media. Right? I had a number of people after the first service say, yep, I need to change how I do Facebook. Because they're realizing they're using it as a billboard that's not a dialogue. That's not in my notes, so I shouldn't have said it. <laughs> you know, people that are otherwise wonderful, sane, godly people that on a couple of issues are completely at war with other Christians and with culture. And I think biblically that choice has consequences. Our testimony, our witness. So I think we have a third choice. We can do the much harder work of seeking unity, not at the expense of truth, but in dialogue with one another, in dialogue with our culture, in finding common ground, seeking to understand, seeking unity in truth. I don't think this is just a denominational thing. Like, why can't the Lutherans and the Baptists and the megachurches and the little churches and the home churches all just get along and realize it's all just one God? Certainly there's huge implications for that context, but I think there are very real implications for our context, for this place, for Emmanuel for the way that we do family, for the way that we do church, for the way we do ministry in our community. I was talking with Chris the other day about this, and he said, and I love this, if we don't have unity as brothers and sisters in Christ, then what on earth do we have to offer our brothers and sisters who are Muslim? If we can't get this stuff right, what on earth do we have to offer the culture around us? It starts with us. Unity is at the heart of what it is to be God's kingdom, what it is to model God's kingdom in this world. Jesus, in the last days of his ministry on earth, prayed this prayer to the Father in John 17. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you've given them to me, so, bring, so they bring me glory. Now I'm departing from the world, and they are staying in this world, but I'm coming to you, and here's the critical part, Holy Father, you've given me your name. 
Now protect them by the power of your name so that they'll be united just as we are. His prayer is not for the world, but for the people of God, for the people that he has chosen to be protected by the power of God, not for their own sakes, but for the sake of their unity. Unless we think that Jesus was praying only for his disciples there in that moment, in that time, he continues, next verse, I'm praying not only that these disciples, but also for all who ever believe in me through their message. That's us. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Jesus prays not for the world, but for his people to live with one another in Holy Spirit-empowered, God-protected unity. Not for our sakes, but for the sake of the world, so that they will know We are God's plan A in this world. We are the primary way that God is bringing his kingdom in this world and changing this world. Jesus continues, I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be the, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. I love that phrase. May the followers of God experience such perfect unity that the world would know. Our unity, according to Jesus, according to this prayer that he prayed to the Father, is absolutely central to our effectiveness in this world. It really, really matters. And not just sort of unity broadly, cosmically, globally as a church. It's right here. It's in how we live this out in Shoreview, in this community. In such perfect unity that the Shoreview Community Center would know. The staff of this place, the people who worship, I mean the people who come and and, and exercise in this place, the people that are involved in our lives would know who God is because of the way we love each other. Because of our unity. And not a false unity that sort of ignores the truth or pretends it's somebody else's problem, but one that leans into the tough stuff and works through it. Today is the first Sunday of the month. And on the first Sunday of the month, we always observe communion together. I'm going to invite the the band to come up and the communion servers to come forward. And communion is one of those things that because we do it so regularly, it's easy to have it just feel rote, to just kind of go through the motions. You know, like, yep, it's first Sunday, so we're going to do this again. But at its core, communion is meant to be a physical representation uh, of entering into unity with Christ, just as Christ is in unity with the Trinity. And it's us entering into it together. We're meant to do it together in community, in communion, unity with each other. But here's the rub. I think if there's relationship breakdowns that exist within us as a body, then in a lot of ways, we're not really able to come forward. We're not really able to fully engage in this, in the community that this represents And so for some of us in this space, this may be just kind of going through the motions, just doing religiosity. And I would encourage you to investigate that, explore that. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak into you and and maybe even expose to you areas where there is division in your mind and in your heart. Where there are hurts that exist with somebody in this fellowship or with another believer that you need to make right. Jesus in Matthew 5 said... So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. 
Go and be reconciled with that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. At least in that passage, it seems like Jesus is a lot more interested in our relationships being right than in our sacrifice being right. And he would rather not even have us bring our sacrifices until we've made things right in our relationships. So I guess that's the question I would ask you. Is there some relationship in your life, in your workplace, in this church, in your marriage, where someone has something against you? Maybe even a misperception. Is there some relationship with another believer that you're holding on to hurt, where there's pain and as a result, you can't honestly say you are experiencing such unity that the world may know. And what do you need to do? What phone call do you need to make? What email do you need to send? Not that things are going to be fixed overnight, but to take that first step towards reconciliation, towards restoration, towards bringing healing and unity to that relationship. In communion, we remember the death of Christ. We do this as a memorial to his suffering, to his sacrifice. But how cool is it that this symbol that once represented death and pain is now a symbol of reconciliation and hope and unity. Let me pray for us. Jesus Christ, we, we echo your prayer, the prayer that you prayed to the Father, that that you would make us one, that the world would see in us such remarkable unity, empowered by your Holy Spirit, protected by your power of your name. God, that the world would see that and marvel that in the way we love each other, God, they would see you. God, I know that in this room, in this space, there's pain represented that goes beyond what any of us think we can naturally even handle. But God, you are God of restoration. You are a God of healing. You are a God who resurrects the dead. And so God, we pray that you would resurrect in us these relationships. Make this a reality, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.